On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we hear about our butterfly effect now and then, something that we do to do something good, but that can have ripple effects on something else. Well, we know the government is now giving students money because they can't work as summer students. But those same students potentially could be going and working on farms where they are desperately needed right now because migrant workers can't be there. What are farmers doing now that they can't get the students very easily and they don't have the people who usually work the fields? We'll talk to somebody who's going through this. We're also going to be chatting about North Korea. Apparently, Kim Jong-un is dead or sick or in a coma or fine. We have no idea. But the stories are that he is not well. What happens if he is, in fact, dead? Who takes over? What happens? It's a huge story with international ramifications. And then Don Robertson joins us. We're going to chat about, well, what's being called tragedy porn, what the NFL and ESPN did on the weekend for the NFL draft, turning every story into a sob story. Is this something you're a fan of, or would you be okay with that? Stick around. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. One of the areas that's been hardest hit by what's happening is also one of our most important, and that would be farming and agriculture. We can do without concerts. We can do without most stores and restaurants and other things. We can't go very long, as you well know, without food. And because of challenges at the borders and other things, the more we can produce in Canada, the better. So we want to make it as easy as possible for farmers here to get their stuff planted and grown and off to market. The challenge right now is coming from the fact that many farmers rely on migrant workers who come here each season to do the heavy lifting. And it is heavy lifting, make no mistake. But they're not allowed into the country, of course, right now. People can't go back and forth over the border. So who fills in? Well, one of the options might have been summer students who don't have jobs right now or in the foreseeable future because the things they were going to do are shut down. So it's a perfect scenario, right? You have an industry that needs workers and workers that need an industry. Just one little fly in that ointment. Federal government has offered a couple thousand dollars a month to students now, all students. And the idea, look, the idea is understandable and commendable and in many ways helpful. But if you can make $2,000 to sit at home and do nothing, why go break your back in the fields to make maybe a little bit more? It's a conundrum. Hayden Dooney is a farmer in the Simcoe area. He's also a member of the Norfolk Fruit Growers Association. He joins us now. Hayden, how are you today? Not too bad. Yourself, Scott? Excellent. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, This is a bit of a conundrum for for all farmers who need to have extra hands because the people that you would often or normally turn to can't come. But I've got to believe that when you have, and as I say, it's a good idea. It's a well-meaning thing. But when you have students who can now make a lot more money just to sit at home or make a lot of money just to sit at home, uh, that's going to be hard to lure them out and do the work, isn't it? Yeah, I've got to think so. Uh, there's uh, a lot of challenges in agriculture at the moment, and and uh, we definitely appreciate the opportunity to be able to encourage students come out and to come out, and uh, we definitely appreciate the the resources that the government's put into it. But yeah, definitely it presents a challenge uh, getting getting students out for sure. Was when you knew that migrant workers weren't going to be able to come when you started sorting through. Okay, how do we deal with this kind of stuff? Was the student demographic an area that you and others started looking at saying, oh, well, maybe that's someplace we can start to find some people? Yeah, um, 
it definitely presents an opportunity. Uh, one of the biggest things that we look at is uh, a lot of the people that have been coming up here have been coming for maybe 15, 20, and some as many as 30 years. Uh, so there's a lot of experience that's been gained over those years that they've been coming here. And when they, they're working on the farms, it's almost uh, just second nature to them to know exactly what, what, uh, what to do and how to do it, when to do it, and to uh, take, take very little um, prompting from, from farm management in order to, to get the jobs done that they need, need to get done. So uh, one of the biggest things, I think, in agriculture that we look at is uh, how do we get these, um, and I'm going to call them professionals, uh, agricultural professionals up here. And uh, yes, there, there are other opportunities that have presented themselves in, in, in the fashion of local employees or students. But uh, I mean, the, the biggest thing that we keep looking back to in agriculture is how do we continue to uh, um, get the value out of the employees that we've bringing, been bringing here for a number of years, 15 plus and up to 30 or maybe even 35 years. I, I'm not sure that every, I think many people do, but I'm not sure everybody understands just how hard those people work too. I mean, this is not relaxing work, is it? I mean, this is, this is hard work that they're doing out there. Yeah. So I've got, uh, my, my kids out there at the moment, uh, if you want to look at them, my, uh, my daughter is 11, my son's 13 and, uh, they're, they're definitely spent at the end of the day after we put them to work and, uh, they're not, they're not putting in a full day. Uh, I work alongside these guys, and they work. Uh, obviously, I've got a, a vested interest in my operation. Uh, they work every bit as hard as me uh, for the whole day, and uh, and sometimes even challenge me to keep up. So they're uh, they're they're definitely doing uh, everything that they can in order to uh, to 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 move the operation forwards and get done what needs to get done. And I'm guessing, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing typically if you were going to be looking for people who to come and fill in where there's a gap to try and keep the agriculture industry working, um, a, a lot of those may be people who are from your area, from more rural areas, but they also have now their own family farms or businesses that they have to chip in with. So it's not necessarily going to be always easy. You're going to have to go to maybe people who live in the city who aren't used to doing this kind of thing. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest challenges as well is uh, bringing people from outside onto the farm. At the at the moment, I have my own farming community here. Uh, my own, I'm going to call them my 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 basically my family. Uh, so I have in my operation five five guys here from Jamaica at the moment. Um, and basically, where I'm at is uh, we we've created our own little community on the farm uh, with the COVID nineteen situation, and uh, we're all in like all in isolation the only time that we go out is to go and get groceries and uh the rest of the time we're here located on the farm so yeah it definitely creates uh, a challenge bringing people in and, and sometimes an inconsistent workforce so new people every day uh presents an opportunity for us to have a problem at the at the farming level uh with with uh COVID-19 for sure you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml we are talking about farming. It's one of the, I mean, we forget about it in the city more often than not. We go to the grocery store, we just assume that food is going to be there, but um, not to put too fine a point or be patronizing, but it takes work to get that food there. People are out there doing this work to make sure that we have food. And here's the challenge, as we've been talking about, the migrant workers, many of them who come up to Canada, come up to Ontario to do the heavy lifting, to do the hard work, can't get here now. So what do you do? 
and it's made more challenging. And again, it's not an insult. It's not a complaint. The federal government has said they're going to give, it's going to give $2,000 a month to summer students who can't get a job. But that may de-incentivize people from incentivize people from wanting to go out and work. Why do it? Why do the hard work if you can get it for free? Hayden Dooney is a farmer in the Simcoe area. He's a member of the Norfolk Fruit Growers Association. Hayden, before we carry on with this one, uh, you know, I should have asked this. We're in 2020 now. Why do we not have or do we have all kinds of equipment that could do all the work that migrant workers or others would have done before? Does that not exist? Yeah, for sure. We're trying to uh, create efficiencies in, in farming operations uh, across all farming operations. And uh, definitely the, we've, we've automated a lot more than what we have been in the past in order to, to reduce cost and, and produce a product that's competitive with input. Um, there's definitely equipment there. It's also, uh, from that perspective, when you look at some of this equipment and what it takes to operate it, uh, that cre- creates some challenges as well because uh, now, now we've We've uh, further advanced technology at the farming level. Uh, it 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 makes it harder and harder to find people to uh, to run some of that that specialized equipment too. Right. So you solve one problem and create a new one. Hundred percent. So if we're struggling to find people who can come in and do this right now, um, just I'm assuming farming works the same every other industry would work. If there's a shortage of workers and there is a higher demand for workers, you may have to pay more to be able to lure those workers in to do the work. Is that correct? Yep, there's some of that going on for sure. Uh, one of the other, one of the other things that we've got going on, and uh, I see this in, in several different um, commodity farming operations, is uh, what, what we're doing at the moment is it, it's taking that, that management level, uh, the people that are overseeing the operation, the people that are looking at the numbers and figures, People that are making decisions, it's it's taken them away. They're uh, they're now operating some of that equipment, and it, it's some of the oversight away from the operation, and and uh, basically leaves behind some of the the paperwork that needs to be completed as well. And that's that's piling up. It's piling up in my operation for sure. Well, and and something we hear a lot now about the difficulty that farmers have is it's becoming more and more difficult to make a living doing this. If you have to be paying people more to do the work, I'm assuming that cuts into your margin and can make this even less of a break-even proposition. Yeah, for sure. Um, the the challenge is is, is uh, we we we're we're a uh, we're a market. We're in a marketplace that uh, we can't necessarily go in and dictate what the pricing is. Uh, we're expected to stay competitive with the pricing, uh, whether it's versus imports or whether it's uh, versus other Ontario producers. Uh, so it's it's a very competitive marketplace in a normal year. Uh, you add in the, the labour challenge or potentially having to pay more for labour, and uh, there, there's not a lot left in it for the farming operations. So what happens if you fall short of numbers of workers? What do you do? Do you just go out there and work an extra five hours, four hours a day, or or do you just leave food on the trees, or what do you do? Yeah, so we'll talk about apples because that's what I'm specialized in. Our uh, farming operation is just primarily apples. Um, so at the moment, there's a lot of uh, a lot of equipment work that needs to get done. Uh, so I've just come in off the tractor there at the moment uh, to, to speak to you tonight. Uh, I've been out there uh, putting out some applications of uh, uh, weed control products. 
Um, so I'm doing more hours at the farm. And uh, our, our, our critical period for, uh, for, for needing employment at the farm is uh, when we come to harvest. So the harvest of the apples is, is going to be our main concern. So we're thinking out at the moment into August and September. If you look at, uh, if you look at vegetable guys as a contrast, uh, their, their key labor component that they need is, is now, and it needs to be very timely. They need to put the veg- start putting vegetables in the ground. They need to start growing vegetables in order to put them in the ground. And uh, we both, between uh, the, the vegetable guys and the fruit guys, have, have two different peak demand periods. So are you each jumping in to help each other then because you know because you're not always busy at exactly the same time? Uh, we're talking back and forth all the time. Uh, there's, there's, uh, it's not easy to share labor uh, back and forth. And because there's a shortage of labor, we can't necessarily just go and help the guy next door that, uh, that has a key demand right now uh, because everybody has a shortage. So it's, it's not quite as simple as just going and helping a neighbor out, helping a friend out and uh, giving them a hand with their peak demand period. It's a, uh, you know, something, again, that most of us don't really think about until, uh, until there's a, something not in the grocery store or the price goes through the roof. But uh, certainly really uh, a difficult part of what's going on right now. Hayden Dooney, I uh, really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk to us today. Thanks so much. Good luck. No problem, Scott. Thanks very much for having me. I, you know, as I say, it, it's fine. It's all good. We don't think about it until suddenly remember a few years ago when cauliflower for whatever reason went through the roof and was super expensive and everyone said why is cauliflower so stinking expensive now well there's reasons and i get why the federal government is trying to help summer students that's not a bad thing but it's that butterfly effect you do something it causes a ripple that creates a something you weren't necessarily thinking about if students can be paid to stay home i'm thinking a lot of them are going to say hey I'm not getting up at 4 a.m. to work for 12 hours a day and break my back. I'll I'll take that money. Creates a bit of a tough spot. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the weekend, we started hearing stories that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was seriously ill or having surgery or brain dead or dead or something. I mean, if you think getting accurate information out of China about coronavirus was difficult, you can imagine how impossible it's going to be to get any kind of reliable information out of North Korea about the guy that state media once said. Here's what they described him. We vow with bleeding tears to call Kim Jong-un our supreme commander. Those bleeding tears, I'm telling you, those are rough. If If you're rooting for bleeding tears, it says something about how devoted you are to this guy. Um, Anyway, we don't really then know what happened, except something might have happened. And with all these rumors swirling around, you'd think that if he was fine, he'd make a public appearance or something just to tamp them down and show that he is up and about. He didn't. So here's the question that everyone's wrestling with now. If he dies, and he's only, I think, 36 years old, if he dies, what happens? Who takes over? And then what Jack Kim is the founder, he's a board member, he's a special advisor to Han Voice, which is Canada's largest nonprofit for North Korean human rights and refugees. He joins us now. Jack, thanks for doing this today. Hi. Hi there. How are you? I am good. Um, week five, six of self-isolation at this point. So There you go. Good as, it, good as it gets. As good as it gets. Well, this story is tricky because 
as human beings, we generally don't root for anyone's demise or for anyone to pass away or anything like that. But this is a man. Well, is this a man that we should be hoping has indeed perished? Well, uh, I mean, uh, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I am not personally not going to shed any tears if I do hear that he has passed away. No uh, bleeding tears, even. No, not, <laughs> no, no, not even the crocodile sorts. Uh, and, and, and in North Korea, they, they certainly know something a little bit about that. But it, it, in, in this particular case, he's uh, I mean, he's a despot. He's a totalitarian dictator who runs concentration camps where people aren't designed to be released. Uh, that being said, uh, we have to look at what has, comes next. And the, right. the biggest problem is that it's, it's a big, huge question mark as to who will be the next leader. Uh, is, is, what will it take? Will, will there be a smooth transition or will there be a bloodbath? Uh, will, it be, will, will it be Game of Thrones? And we don't know. What, what will happen. So there's a bit of uncertainty. The devil that you have right now may be better than the devil that you don't know. But we, we which, don't know. which is saying something, which is saying something, because, I mean, he, from everything we know about him, he, I mean, he is a devil. When you say Game of Thrones, though, Jack, it's when his father passed away, it was a, and I use the word in air quotes here, it was a peaceful transition to his son. There was no bloody coup or anything, as far as I know. Do you expect that the same thing would happen? Because the, the rumor is that it would be his sister who would take over. Do you expect that it would be another peaceful-ish transition to his sister? Or do you think that when the son is gone, that it opens the door for someone to try and nudge their way in there and grab that mantle? Yeah, and that, that, that's, the, that's the biggest uh, uncertainty that we have. Uh, if if we, we think that, people are compliant and they believe that they need that Kim dynasty mantle to, to go through the succession. Then someone's going to, at the very least borrow, like quote unquote, borrow uh, the sister's legitimacy as a Kim. I mean, she's a woman and in North Korea being a, a, a big time patriarchy that that's somewhat of a no, no, but still she's a Kim and co governing with that, Per, with the with the sister might be something that people think of, but you can also think of uh, a very ambitious two star major general who thinks, you know, what I have the tanks. Why am I listening to these people in in Pyongyang right now? And why am I listening to a woman? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And, and, and uh, speaking speaking from not from me, from their attitude towards yeah, it. Yeah, why you know from yeah. Yeah, base base instincts, and uh, and go through that, and and they could see this as a, a, a an opportunity to reset, but in a in a more sinister way. So they're uh, yeah, unfortunately all bets are probably off, uh, at least in the medium to long term. Like again, you don't want to paint a dire picture of what could happen, but if she was to take over, does she almost have to do something? to show her strength and flex her muscles in some sort of violent or just really strong way to show that she really is in charge and don't you even think about crossing me? Yeah, and, and what we saw with Kim Jong-un basically was the uh, the execution of his uncle, uh, Chang Sung-tek, and the long drawn out trial that his uncle had to go through and, and the fact that he, he was killed we also saw Kim Jong-un going after his brother, 
more famously in um, in the airport at Kuala Lumpur, right. using using weapons of mass destruction, basically VX. And uh, I mean, the movie The Rock uh, theatricized what VX could do, but it, it wasn't too far off. Like a few drops on VX into your nervous system, and, and you're gone. And so uh, this 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 guy Kim Jong Un was not afraid to use weapons of mass destruction in one of the busiest airports in in Asia. So you can see the length of what, what he may, he, he had to do. The sister may have to do the same thing um, in, in, in that similar regard. If, of course, if it is the sister who is the, the real muscle behind the, the operation. Jack, what do we know about her? I mean, the last I saw of her, she was at the opening of the Olympics or, or at some events in the Olympics uh, in the last Olympics in South Korea. Do we know, is this who she is? Is she a tyrant just like her brother and like her father? Or do we know anything about her? If we we had to make a guess, uh, we probably have to think that she is going to continue the the policies of her brother, uh, namely because she has been so attached to them behind the scenes. As you mentioned, she was at the, uh, the Winter Olympics. She was at the Singapore summit with Donald Trump. She has been with at the summits with the uh, the South Korean president Moon Jae-in, and and has been a uh, a, a, a salient background figure in in uh, in Kim Jong Un's policy making and ex- execution. So if she if she departs from that, it's going to be a surprise. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Jack Kim from Han Voice, which is a nonprofit supporting North Korean refugees and people suffering from human rights issues from that part of the world. We're talking about the health of Kim Jong-un, who, I mean, it's a giant mystery. We've heard everything from nothing has happened to he's dead and everything in between. Um, Jack, what would happen? So we were talking about his sister and whether she would take power. Or not. Let's play along for just a second and say she was the one who grabbed the mantle. Is there any possibility at all that she takes the position that she's going to extend an olive branch to the rest of the world and try and not be the third crazy Kim and make the rest of the world sort of open things up and soften their stance? Or is that completely ludicrous to even suggest that could happen? Uh, no, I don't think it's ludicrous. Um, I mean, uh, it doesn't say much about Kim Jong-un himself, but uh, she, she has also been educated in the West, spent some time in Switzerland as well. And I mean, to be honest, um, she's been a faithful executor of her uh, her brother's policies, but we we don't know what she actually believes uh, in 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 the big scheme of things because she's been such a background figure. Uh, if if she did, she she could take the uh, the opportunity to press that reset button and open things up, close down the camps, uh, bring in the foreign direct investment, create an environment where people can actually invest in. But uh, will she do that is, is, is a big question because they're, they're almost incentivized not to, uh, namely because the camps and the repressive system are, are part and parcel of the, the whole governance apparatus in the country. Would she be able to, I mean, uh, theoretically, if she was the boss, um, I mean, they're essentially gods when they become the boss, so they can almost do whatever they want. But if she was to become the boss and tried to do this, is there a chance, though, that the military people say, no, no, we like the way it is right now. You're not going to do this. Yeah, there, there certainly is. And uh, there, 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 there are a lot of reasons why 
uh, she might not. Uh, she's basically going against the, the whole way that her, her family uh, has governed. Um, and uh, she's also going against uh, what is a very military uh, preferential treatment that the, uh, the, the whole country has gone through. Uh, Kim Jong-un's policy has been uh, on basically a, a bipod. So one, on one leg, you have the military, and on the other leg, you have economic development. Well, let's, let's put it this way. The economic development uh, has a lot to, to be wanting. And so the military has been on the forefront of what North Korea and, and the, the whole ethos of what it means has been. Jack, this, I don't even know how to ask this question because it, it's, it's such a different world from where we live uh, that it's really hard to even understand this. But the people who have lived in North Korea all their life have been told all their life about the godness of Kim Jong-il and then Kim Jong-un and with state-run media. And if, in fact, he did die, if Kim Jong-un did die, would the people there be sad or would they be happy? I mean, do they do they do they truly believe the stories that they've been told all their lives now? Has that been has that taken enough hold in them that they would say that's a horrible thing that he's dead? Uh, the fortunate thing is that a lot of that, from what we understand, has ebbed away. Uh, the whole sun worship and the, the personality cult is is basically upheld by fear and by the concentration camps more than some sort of true belief in the. Um, the the system itself uh that being said uh there may be people who actually uh do feel fearful and concerned if he did pass away or die because of the uncertainty that uh would unfold i mean it's similar to how people in russia these days are going back to the stalin worship which is uh astounding to you and i in the in the outside world but that was an era where they look back and say, well, you know, it was better. It was more certain that way. Yeah, a lot of people died and it was, it was ruthless, but at least we knew what was happening. And yeah. they're, they're, they're just wondering be, yeah, that as well. No, I'm just wondering if you think that if somebody came into power and did soften the reins a bit, pull back on the reins and make show less muscle and more kind leadership, I don't know how else you want to describe it. Would the people be shocked to the point where they would be disapproving of this, or do you think the people there would buy into it very quickly? I, I think it would really depend on how the uh, the country was liberalized, so to speak. Uh, if it was shock therapy in the 1990s with with Eastern Europe, uh, you could really see uh, nostalgia for the the Kim era, especially people who are old enough. Uh, the first Kim, Kim Il Sung. In the 1970s, North Korea was actually much more prosperous than South Korea. It's very hard to believe these days, but yeah, they, they were richer than the South Koreans were. And people who are old enough could go back to that nostalgia thinking, yeah, that, that's the time when we were actually living okay. And, and look back at it rather than chaos. And you could, you could see, for instance, um, the South, South Korean companies, the Samsungs, the, uh, the LGs, coming into the to the cheap labor that North Korea would provide as well and kind of swoop that up and who knows what what could happen when it comes to exploitation and all that so uh, I, I'm I'm sure that's probably in the back of mind of any North Korean leader who really wants to liberalize the country it's uh, something we'll be watching because if in fact he's dead I assume we'll find out 
in due course, uh, whenever they decide that we're going to find out. And uh, we'll have to see because it is they certainly for a small country have had an enormous effect on world policy and world fears for a number of years now. Jack Kim from Han Voice, really appreciate the time. Thanks as always for doing this, Jack. No, thanks for having me. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is time to bring in Don Robertson, who we have on the show every Monday at this time. Uh, Don also from Robertson Acres on the uh, on the top of a hill in the uh, greater Flamborough area. Let's look, if you're driving by through Flamborough, look up at the highest point in that house. That palatial mansion is where Don lives. Right, Don? How are you today? It's not quite accurate, but uh, carry on. The, <laughs> Don't the tell people that. The high point in Flamborough, though, if you're heading up Westover Road and you drive into the village of Westover, where there's some huge hills, which are former drumlins, I think the term is, uh, the locals, <laughs> Dougie Reynolds, my brother-in-law was involved in it, they, they wrote out the words Westover like they do in Hollywood, California very cool you can't miss it when you're driving straight up westover road they're a very creative group up there i think it probably come out of a garage party on a friday afternoon the idea maybe there it there is may have been That's some the there may have been some liquid road. inspiration yeah may have been some liquid inspiration uh, i was listening scott to you talking about your track pants and doing the oh, yeah. basement version of this and i was cutting some grass today i cut about four acres i didn't get it all done but i cut about four acres and i Got off the lawnmower and I got thinking, you know what? If the stock market goes up as quickly after the lockdown is over, as quickly as my weight has during the lockdown, we're all going to be rich. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw a picture the other day of a bear crossing the road, a big fat bear, and someone said, here's a squirrel just coming out of hibernation after the COVID. <laughs> um, that's, that, that's what it feels like. But no, I, I put on actual pants today for the first time in. I don't know how long because I've been wearing track pants and fleeces around the house. Just, I mean, no one's going to see me. So now the pants I put on were not exactly uh, tuxedo pants, but um, it was, it was still, it was, it was odd to be really dressed. I, I'd love to know how many of the guys and women who are doing TV right now from their home, if you angled the camera down, would have no pants on. I bet the number is over 50%. I would think you're probably right. And I think that half the people that are behind the desks anyway have jeans on. Ken Welsh used to always wear short pants when he was doing CHCH. So there's that. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that Bill Kelly has done his show in his tidy whities every single day that he's been doing it from home. Uh, Don, did you happen, since you're at home, since you uh, aren't cutting the grass every minute of every day, did you happen to watch any of the NFL draft on the last week or on the weekend? I did, but I missed the part you wrote about in your um, your piece on the spec, the notes version on Saturday. I did not see the guy sitting on the dumper in the bathroom. Well, okay, so the, yeah, there was that. But I wanted to ask you about something else because – there was something that seemed to me to be very obvious, and I was wondering if anyone else caught it, and I went online. And uh, sure enough, I'm not the only one who noticed this. And it was the idea that, did you notice that, 
And now for people who didn't watch the NFL draft, I assume you know what the NFL draft is, all the players getting chosen. But ESPN this year did something very strange that I don't quite understand, taking a cue from NBC in their Olympic coverage. And I don't know if you saw this, but seemingly every player, as soon as they announced them, they would say where they went to school, what position they played, how good they are, blah, blah, blah. And then immediately pivoted to some horrible tragedy in that player's life. Dad died, sister lost a leg, grandma was hit by a car, Aunt Agnes had some sort of lupus or something. Like every single guy, the default thing they went to was a tragedy. And a lot of people online now, online now are referring to this as tragedy porn. The ESPN decided they are going to milk and squeeze emotion out of this thing where there isn't really generally emotion to be squeezed. Does that stuff work for you? When, when you're watching the Olympics and every single American who is going to compete has overcome some horrible tragedy in their life, does that stuff ring your no, bell it, and get your tears no, welling up? It, it does, Scott, if uh, like there was a great, well, great column you did in The Spectator about the young fellow that got drafted you know, and his father had passed away tragically. And those kind of stories to me are meaningful. But, you know, when Grandpa died before the draft, I think what they're trying to do, the Americans are famous for this. They're just trying to make absolutely everybody a hero that has actually climbed Mount Everest and then slid down on a surfboard to stardom. You know what I mean? Like they just, they try and make everybody a hero by virtue of the fact that they've had to come out overcome so many obstacles to get there it's 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 a little disingenuous when you try to do it with all of them yeah i mean look if you've got and i did i wrote about a kid uh, who was drafted by the bulldogs whose father had passed away uh, about a year ago and very young man he was 16 years old this kid and you know it was exceedingly difficult probably would have given up hockey and so i don't make an excuse for writing that piece and I know that no, there no, are no. three or four. No, no. And I know there are three or four guys in the NFL draft who's probably had the very similar thing that their mother passed away or their father. But like it was done. It was literally every guy. There was one guy on Saturday who they pivoted and immediately started talking about his grand. I'm not making this up. His grandmother who died in 2007. That's like what he was four years old. What does that got to do with anything at this point? All of our grandmothers died, generally, Scott, unless we die young. I mean, that's not news. I wasn't trying to disparage the story you wrote. No, 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 no. I didn't take it like that. Like the one you wrote, that's legit. That's real. But a young guy that's getting drafted and his grandmother dying, generally speaking, now he's a young man, so the, so the, you know, she wouldn't have been that old. But the reality, the reality is, all of our grandparents are gone. I you'd be very fortunate to have a grandparent alive at your age, right? So they're all gone. So you can't, yeah. like I say, they try and make them all heroes whatever way they can. And you can't force feed the public to believe that they're all heroes. That's but, Don, this is a way. This is a proven, seemingly proven formula in American sports television. Because as I say, if you watch the Olympics on NBC, every athlete will have the soft piano music or the harp music and it'll be some story about some horrible thing that they've overcome or whatever else. And like some of those people have truly overcome some stuff, but some of the stuff you look at and you go, really? On, like on a, on a balance here, 
that's that's the thing that defines your life and that's unusual i, I don't know I, somewhere though that it must there must be polling done or there must be something done that shows that a lot of people really go for this in in like massive quantities because they dumped it on every single player you know that the u.s networks do a demographic study and polling to see you know, who's watching, what is the demographic of the, of the people that are watching this thing. And they try and, they try and speak to that. I mean, there's no better proof. Have you seen the president of the United States on TV recently? I mean, I had a glass of Javex this morning. I don't have COVID-14, but I think that'll prevent it. I mean, do you see the stuff he says? So everybody has a target market and ESPN have obviously identified that as something that's important and will play to the audience that they're going to that maybe there can be no other reason for it right i mean it doesn't make any other sense well except on the target audience and uh, you know i i may be wandering into some i don't know some sexist territory here but the olympics we know from the demographic numbers that show up the olympics are amazingly popular with women they make up a huge percentage of the viewing audience for the Olympics. Less so now. They, it's still a huge population for the NFL, but I'm not sure what the population of women is who sit there and watch the NFL draft for three straight days. I would bet money that it is a lower percentage than are watching the Olympics, and I'm not sure that Bubba and Skeeter, who were at home drinking their 15th beer of a Saturday afternoon, really care that Bobby Schmarcola, the new tight end for Dallas's third cousin back in 1972, suffered from leprosy. Well, and the other thing that that I'm also sure of is that any women that spent three days watching the NFL drafts likely have mullets. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I... I'm not, I'm not discouraging these kind of stories when there is a legitimate basis for them. It's just that somewhere someone has decided and it's, it's a, I don't know. It, it's a, I was going to say it's a sickness. I mean, it kind of is, even though it's a sickness of television, that this is the, this is the way we can get people to watch. Let's make everything sad. Let's make everything sad. Do you not think, and, and here's the part that I really was considering as I watched all this. There's a lot of sadness in the world right now and a lot of discomfort, a lot of people not feeling great about everything. Do you not think that this would have been an opportunity rather than focusing on all the sadness and tragedy than to find something fantastic that each of these guys has done and focus on that? Would that not have resonated more with people? You would hope so. I mean, if nothing else, you would absolutely hope so. Like I... It, like I said, you can't make every, I mean, there are some tremendously good stories. And the other option is that you say, you know, this is, this is how he made it. He got cut from the high school football team or the, the grade school football team. And he overcome his own adversities because maybe, you know, maybe, maybe he wasn't skilled enough, but he worked so extra hard at it. The thing that, really makes me when 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 we talk about stuff like this it makes me so proud to be a canadian because when you reverting back to your comments about the olympics and what what the u.s networks do about the olympics <clears throat> brian williams 
was absolutely magnificent. And I like Brian Williams in, in not enormous doses, but I quite like his storytelling ability. And some of the stories that guys like Brian Williams do for Canadian athletes is so much different than the U.S. and how they portray their things, which again makes me a lot happier to be a Canadian than, a, than an American, as much as I love to visit the place, or used to, and uh, so on. But there's such a difference in how we present things versus the Americans. And Scott, they've got to be doing it to their audience. I mean, they know who they're speaking to. Because you can't do stuff like that hoping to attract people because other people are talking about it. You should be talking directly to your audience, and that they must believe that's their audience. Yeah, it's just it's, to me, it's modeling, and and it's it's like anything else. If you do it in small doses, it is effective. It's very effective if you hear the odd story about this. But when every person now. When every person, this is this is a, a, a knock on the flip side that I have sometimes when we watch the World Junior Hockey Championship, that every single player is described as honestly the next great Wayne Gretzky. That everything that these players do is amazing. And it's like, well, you know what? I, I'm I'm way more inclined to think you're credible and believe what you're telling me about this guy if it stands out because it's not the same with every single player. Not every single player that plays the World Junior Hockey Championship is going to the Hall of Fame, but you would think so. I mean, it's, you kind of got to pick your spots. That's true. You got to kind of pick. To me, you got to pick your spots, and it, it just loses all the impact. It becomes schmaltzy and maudlin and all those other things. Saccharin when literally every guy is like this. I, again, I, I'm with you. If a guy overcomes being cut from his team and sticks with it, that's not tragedy. That uh, That's inspiring to me. That's inspiring that's to me. But story. Sure, Michael Jordan was cut from his junior basketball team in high school and came back, and we know what Michael Jordan did. Uh, I, it, it's it's just it's too much of a, of a crutch almost now. It's too much of a crutch. And I just, I can't imagine in the, in the meetings beforehand when they said, okay, how are we going to keep the audience and the guy goes okay what we're going to do is mention the worst moment of every kid's life within 20 seconds of him being drafted but that doesn't strike me as that doesn't strike me as a terrific strategy for anything but you know what that's what they decided that's to what? do hopefully next year um, you know what they you know what they needed to do don less of those stories and more camera time exploring the coaches and general managers homes because that was an amazing part some of them really didn't care eh? holy cow like and they, some really did yeah some it was like watching that show last night and david foster's having seven thousand junos on his piano <laughs> versus yeah, other guys every award just, and burton cummings singing who has a bunch of them you know from his small studio in his home but you but you're right i mean the, some of the guys took a little bit of pride knowing they were going to be on national tv and some of them thought it was only facetiming to their cousin i mean holy crap there was you don want if some you element of professionalism wouldn't you think if you have won all those awards or if you're the general manager of an nfl team and you've succeeded to that level i, I don't know that as much as i love seeing the homes i, I don't know that you need to put your trophies on display. You've made it. You're the general manager of an NFL team. 
that said, yeah. a couple of those homes, it's like, well, okay, no, no, you, that home, yeah, people should see that home. That was a really cool home. But I just, I would, I'd like to see this honestly in every draft now. Let's have all the NHL coaches and GMs. I want to see their place and, and and baseball. I want to see all of them now. Forget the the draft room at their arena. I want to see all of this done from each of their places now. That that was the way to and go. Some of the, uh, um, like every general manager in the NFL, and I've never never looked it up. Perhaps you have. Um, got to be making a few million dollars a year some of them look At like they lived in a double look like they live in a double wide like well maybe some of them do some of them right? may like, be cheap yeah yeah double white well, maybe trailer. some of them are a little bit cheap you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml with don robertson across town making the triangle here ben in studio don in flamborough somewhere me in the basement but it works. It works, Don. I mean, the technology is amazing, isn't it? It really is. Well, it's a lot better than driving down the station every Monday night. I can tell you that. I can well, get used to this. Yeah, well, you may well. I mean, we could be locked up like this for another five years. We don't know. Who knows? Who knows when they'll actually release us? And you don't know. At least you've got 72 yeah. acres there. So, you know, can't imagine you can what grow your own will be if we stay here forever. That's true. I can, <laughs> that, yeah, that is. And unfortunately, that is true. I keep being told, hey, go out and get some exercise. And I keep thinking, oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. And then all of a sudden, I finish the show and it's eight o'clock. And I'm like, I don't really feel like doing it now, even though that's what I always used to do it before. So, you know, th- what I've done, though, Don, my answer to this, my solution to this is make sure I'm wearing the pants that I haven't done up the drawstring, the fat pants, so that really they can expand and expand and expand. And it's not until they reach the point when they're snug without even being done up that I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, that's that's my, that's my guide. Like I'll give you some of the ones I've grown out of. You'll be fine. I <laughs> uh, read a story this week or late last week, I guess, that I thought was really interesting. And it said with all the stuff, the all the impact that this is having on the world of sports and all of the sports that are being affected, the area that is going to be hit the hardest with the most permanent damage because the NHL is going to come back and the NFL is going to come back and Major League Baseball will come back and all the rest. The area that is going to suffer permanent damage is women's sports. You agree with that? Well, they have uh, sadly far less uh, room to fall because they're not as dominant as the men's sports are. But I don't think it's going to help any of them. I think things like the WNBA will be okay. I'm a bit worried about women's hockey, which I'd like to see turn into a proper pro league, a minor pro league. Because that's what it is. And that's the type of term they should start using is that they don't, you know, they want to be minor pro because they're not, they got to quit trying to compare themselves to the NHL. But yes, I, I think women's, women's sports may suffer a bit more than men's sports. You know, the, the national, so there, there was the Canadian Women's Hockey League here in Canada, no doubt, uh, uh, that folded last year. And there was a separate, separate, se- second, I'll, I'll get the word out eventually, a second league in the States called the National Women's Hockey League. It has now announced that it is going to be expanding to Toronto. Uh, I thought it was an extremely weird time, although the news 
possibly is good. It was a really weird time to announce that, wasn't it? In the middle of this, I I, I don't know the. I mean, maybe the t- maybe the timing behind it was to tell people we're still here and we're working towards something really good, I suppose. But it, it just seemed odd that this was the time you do that. Well, I, I think from a marketing standpoint, from a brand of hockey that's trying to make themselves relevant, from that aspect, absolutely, it was it was a tough time. If they'd have come out, and they and they probably couldn't and say, we have a team in Toronto. First of all, they don't have a name. Not everybody where they're playing. I mean, they didn't, they didn't bring much of a package to the announcement, right? They didn't, you know, they're not going to say that we're playing out of the Mattamy Center downtown Toronto or, but more importantly, the thing that I looked at is you would also think that they would want to bring a host of sponsors along with them. And I don't think now is any time that you're going to start getting major corporate sponsors that are going to start committing hundreds of thousand dollars to a new project in the trying times that we're facing. So to answer your question with a bit of a, a comment, I think it was nuts. I, I, I just can't see it. And by all evidence, the National Hockey League have kind of indicated that they would perhaps be interested in jumping in doing something like the NBA did with the WNBA and maybe helping them out a little bit. But they've made it very clear that there can only be one league, and I guess the American League, and this is American-centric, this uh, Women's National Hockey League, are saying, we're not going away. The Canadian League went away. The Americans are saying, oh, no, you're not chasing us away so you can form one league. We are the league. And with a team in Toronto... They might be right, but they may be taking a step backwards if the National Hockey League won't buy into what they're selling. But they, well, a couple they things. announced uh, yeah. very little. Well, and, and so when you talk about the two leagues, I mean, the one thing that they weren't able to do, they announced five players had signed on with his team, and one of them, uh, Kirsten Barbera, who is a Hamilton woman, I mean, very lovely person and a good hockey player, but I don't know that she would be a name that most people would recognize. They didn't bring... Sarah Nurse or Laura Fortino or someone else's name or a bunch of their names where you would say, okay, you know what, I I know those from the national team, so therefore I'm getting on. But you're right about the second part, and that is, Don, you own a company, and let's say that the league came to you right now because they've said we're coming to this area, to southern Ontario. I don't think, I'm not a businessman, but I don't think that there's too many people right now that know what the economy is going to look like in six months, let alone a year, let alone tomorrow. And so to try and be finding sponsorships right now when companies are, many of them, very nervous and saving their dimes because who knows where we're going to be and, and how much money we mean, may need to keep in the kitty just to pay off our bills, boy, that seems like a tough one. So women's hockey, like there's, you're right, from the business aspect and I know a number of guys that own businesses and I know a number of guys that pick up garbage for a living. I mean, I know all kinds of people as do you, but from strictly from a business standpoint, there aren't enough people that have confidence. I don't think in today's environment, that they would jump into what they might call a fledging team. The only guys you're going to get, and I don't even think you get them in this economic environment are guys that, absolutely love the sport 
We have some people that sponsor the Dundas Real McCoys because they really enjoy the product. They enjoy what we do in the community. So to take it to the next level where you're going to start paying people, you know, to be minor pro hockey players, you're just going to have to love the sport and have enough disposable income. Like some of the sponsors that that Canadian league would have had would have been guys that the money that they spent on sponsorship for that league, and that's what this new team will need, is equivalent to you and I being a member of a golf course and thinking, you know, we don't golf much, but we want to remain a member because we want to support it and we can afford to. You know what I mean? So to those guys, the sponsorship of $150,000 or a quarter of a million dollars is akin to joining Shadok or the Beverly Golf and Country Club or playing at Copetown Woods on a regular basis. That's what it has to mean to them. And it can't be a significant investment. Nobody's going to pour... $150,000 of their marketing money into a league like that or a team like that if they only have $200,000 to invest in marketing. Okay, do you think it can work? Do you think it can work? I mean, ultimately, it comes down to this. Do you believe that women's hockey in this country, and we keep hearing that this is the case, and I don't disagree, but do do you believe that women's hockey can work as a viable business proposition? Not even necessarily, Don, like the NHL. I'm not talking about where everyone's making $10 million. Just where they can make a salary and the league can stay liquid. Do you believe that can happen? I don't want to sound like a sexist, but the true answer is no, I don't. I don't think there's enough interest. And the only true, excellent, the premier women's hockey can sell but that's the Olympics. That is means Canada and U.S. both have a team. So when you put the 20 best women in our country on the ice and the 20 best American women and, you know, maybe Switzerland and, you know, the other, the other countries are catching up, I don't think there's enough depth to provide the entertainment value that's required to attract mass audiences. I mean, Scott, look at, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound uh, silly saying this. The Dundas Real McCoys have Darren Hadar, who was inducted in the American Hockey League Hall of Fame. We have um, uh, Jason Williams, who won a Stanley Cup with the Detroit Red Wings. J.L. Greitmeyer is not filled to the rafters to watch these guys play. They're outstanding athletes. Are they NHL caliber right now? No, or they'd be playing in the National Hockey League. So if we can't sell that product, I really think a diluted North American league, when you have eight teams, for example, or six teams of the best players in North America, when you dilute it down, I think it's a tough sell. I don't know if they'll have the success that they want to have. Do I think they deserve it? Absolutely. But they've got to scale it down a little bit. And because well, here's... it's not, you can call it pro, but you know what? When some of the salaries are $15,000 a year, that's what guys make in the East Coast Hockey League at the men's level. And that's double A hockey. And, and if they want to try and market it as a comparison to the National Hockey League, I think it's going to be a long time before they can achieve that kind of a goal. I admire 
Laura Fortino and those who said, we're not going to play this year because we want to get a solid league that makes sense to us. But with the other league not stopping and carrying on and now expanding into Toronto, boy, that kind of, that trips them. I, I don't know how they get out of that. Here's the thought that I've had for a long time now, and that is, you know, we hear people say, women and men, that women's hockey deserves a pro league, that women's hockey can make it as a pro league, that women's hockey will get viewers and get people there if they just will get the initial buy-in. And I don't know if that's true or not, and I'm not trying to – I'm not going to blow smoke. I don't know if that's true, and the only reason I say that, I'm with you. I would love for it to work, but there's no evidence that it can work right now. But if there is a true belief within the halls of power that women's hockey only needs exposure and coverage in order to work, probably 20 years ago, maybe now almost 25 years ago, TSN took the CFL under its umbrella that was a league that was in real trouble, put it on Friday nights, gave it the special treatment, gave it the studio panel and made it a big thing and really dressed it up and made it into a, a, a league that was made to look like it mattered, which it now does. And if TSN hadn't done that 20 or 25 years ago, the CFL I'm convinced right now would be dead, would be in the same position women's hockey is in in a lot of ways. TSN doesn't have the NHL contract right now. There's another, I don't know, six years left before that contract with Sportsnet ends. If there are people who truly believe that women's hockey is merely TV coverage and exposure away from being a big, big deal, TSN should sign the same contract they signed with the CFL, have a bunch of teams get started, and you would easily be able to cover the bills and you could put them on, pick a night of the week and it's women's hockey in Canada. And if you truly believe this is just a case of not enough eyeballs getting exposed to it, there's your answer. Well, the TSN certainly, without question, your analogy is perfect. They made they made the CFL relevant again. They got rid of the local blackouts. They put all the games on, which I think was a smart idea. And now, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, the CFLs had ups and downs. But they're, I think, the CFL are doing quite well right now. And you're right; a lot of it has to be attributed to CSN, TSN. What I don't agree with, and what I when your analogy says that they, when you talk about relevance and going, do they need the chance? There has been pro hockey in Toronto, women's pro hockey in Toronto, and the crowds were dismal. But that's they the argument. But Don, the argument always was that there was never TV coverage, there was never proper media coverage. And so what I'm saying is if the belief is that that's the only missing ingredient to turn this into a real great league, so you put them on TV, you get TSN or someone else to really to do what was done to the CFL, problem solved, and this thing will take off. And now the TSN is a ratings strength for TSN. Well, you know what? I mean, I, I've, uh, you and I've had the conversation. I've had them with the Hamilton Spectator for years and years and years. I think if you make senior hockey in Dundas and now Hamilton relevant, it will help our crowds. We had Rick Vive play. You know, we don't play to sell out crowds. And the Hamilton Spectator have tremendous influence and credibility in our community. And and I believe that if the Hamilton Spectator uh, had a beat reporter that covered senior hockey, 
it would help. Would it fill the rink? Would it make it relevant? It would make it more relevant, but it wouldn't fill the building. And I what if you were on TV every that. game? What if you were on TV every game? If every game was televised, how would that impact it? Well, te- televised is one thing. The Junior A League in Ontario now have their games on CHCH every Saturday. And I don't know if there's any evidence that that's helped their attendance. So what you're saying then is you really have to do, you really have to provide a product that, that inspires people to go to the buildings. And if your product isn't good enough to fill the rinks, then there's a real good chance that it's not going to get enough eyeballs to give you the relevance you want, even if it's on TV. It's an unpopular position, Don, and I understand that, but I believe wholeheartedly that the people who are in the broadcast world are not stupid people for the most part and they have studied these things and if they truly believed that there was money to be made by broadcasting a professional women's hockey league they would do it and i'm not saying they're sexist i don't believe that at all i don't, I, I believe that they are dollarist they will go wherever the money is it's business scott it's business, it's business. they thought it's, they could make the cfl relevant right, right? and if and they, they thought they could make that- women's hockey go they would do it Yes, and in a second, I th- I think, and your memory is far better than mine, that TSN made that conscious decision to make the CFL relevant about the time Sportsnet came out. Right, so they needed an anchor, a Canadian anchor outside of hockey, that they could build on. Now the league's you know was seventy five years old then, and they had a tremendous history but they decided that they needed that to make themselves relevant and the same thing i would think would would be the case with women's hockey if women's hockey if tsn felt to back up your theory that they they could get eyeballs on and sell the advertising and market the league and it stars to the point where they did with the cfl Although the CFL is the second cousin to the NFL, women's hockey would be a second cousin to the National Hockey League. Sportsnet re-opted when they got their major contract. I was with Pat LaForge, my buddy that used to run the Oilers. We were on a golf course in California, and he got an email saying that after after Sportsnet had uh, taken over the NHL rights, they re-opted their uh, OHL, CHL package, because th- he thought, you know, they may dump it because of the NHL. They wanted to dominate the hockey market. They didn't even want to leave that for TSN. So the CHL had rel- relevance to them, and still women's hockey, and there was a Canadian league that none of the big networks, nor any network, or CH, or any local any local uh, broadcaster decided to pick up a television deal for them. And if they thought yeah. they filled it into something like the CFL, I think they would have. Well, and you know what? we got to go. But even Sportsnet, you know, like if Sportsnet was trying to do that, because they do have Canadian Hockey League, the junior hockey, and they obviously have the NHL package. If they said, listen, we're going to put, I mean, certainly times are tough, and the NHL deal has, we know, has hurt. But if they say, we're going to put $30 million a year into TV coverage and production and everything else of women's hockey, they would own it. 
the question becomes, they've surely studied it and they've surely come to the conclusion that it can't make them any money. That to me is sad, not sexist. I mean, that's, that's the position that's often said, it's sexist, it's not sexist. If there is money to be made showing tiddlywinks at midnight in glow-in-the-dark tiddlies, they will do that. But they're just, uh, for whatever reason, obviously people don't believe there's money to be made, which means, by extension, they don't believe it can work. I don't know if I agree with that or not, but there's no reason to believe or disagree with that opinion. Anyway, well, we got to take a run. Money. It's the not our money. That, the only network that might do it and haven't done it is CBC. Don Robertson, thanks for helping out today. I really appreciate it, as always. Scott, it was great. Thank you very much. Have a good week. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.